Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, that as rich guys would do epic shit. And now, your host, that's Hybin. If this is empty, this doesn't matter. That's your home. I'm always home. I'm on tour. Me too. You're doing great, dude. Telling true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is it my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. Wrong Tribe Confounds, The Right Tribe Compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires, a $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. All right, Gobos. I got a great Gobro in the room. Mr. Mike Hannell is here and... Uh, Man, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. My head's going crazy just of all the different things I could ask him. But first of all, let let him tell you who he is. Mike, Mike, give us like a story, like a day you were born till now, five minutes. All right. Uh, I was born in September 1968, which according to Ted or Tom Brokaw was the year that changed everything, Vietnam War, all kinds of uh, unrest, the peace movement. It was a kind of a big year. And then they landed on the moon the year after. So I grew up in the 70s in Los Angeles, born in Los Angeles, grew up here, pretty much lived here most of my life. I've, I've lived in New York City. I've lived in San Francisco for different times, but I always come back to uh, L.A. I really, really do love it here. And uh, so I went to private uh, school for elementary school. Middle school, I actually switched and went to public school uh, for my last year of, of junior high school. And then went to public school for high school up until, you know, about the time where after we graduated, there was the first shooting at my public high school. So it kind of changed. And of course, nowadays, we can't really send our kids to public school anymore, at least not not in L.A. So I, uh, I went to UCLA, stayed in L.A. and worked my way through college. I had like three jobs and was pretty much on my own during college. I left home and uh, was on my own at that point. And started working. I actually had a part-time job while I was in college, working at a fragrance company called Bijan Fragrances. And uh, I ended up staying there for 12 years because I was constantly challenged by new opportunities. I had an amazing boss who was really my mentor, still a very good friend to this day. She, she now lives in, uh, well, in Savannah, Georgia, but also in Amelia Island. She kind of goes back and forth and we stay in touch. Uh, but she really taught me a lot, everything about business and negotiating and sort of how to work in a corporate environment and all different aspects of business. It was a really great education. While I was in college, I worked there part-time and then graduated uh, UCLA in 92. And so that was my, uh, my job. I, was, I luckily had a job. A lot of the uh, people I went to college with were worried because we had a big recession, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And so most people weren't able to get jobs out of college. I was lucky I had this job, although I sort of fell into it. I never expected I would have been in the cosmetics industry, but I stayed in that industry for a number of years. Worked uh, While I was there, I worked on some really exciting projects besides the fragrance launch. We did a, the Michael Jordan cologne. Uh, I did a huge project for the Sultan of Brunei and then uh, eventually left in 1999. Actually, my, I met my wife uh, there as well, although for years we were just co-workers and then uh we later secretly started dating while working together not always the best idea but we got away with it and then um we left in 1999 to start an internet company called gloss.com my wife and i was my wife was my co-founder with the third person the three of us founded this com we got venture capital funding in silicon valley moved up to san francisco started the company 
I mean, it was, you know, back then we used to say, yeah, we're, we're working at internet speed, which was like, you know, pretty much 24-7. And we luckily sold the company in March of 2000 to Estee Lauder. We were in the cosmetic space selling cosmetics online. Luckily, we sold the company before the dot-com crash of 2000. And then I worked for Lauder for a couple of years. After that, I left, started doing consulting work made a little bit of money at that point. So started looking at things to invest in, started researching everything you could possibly invest in, ended up coming around to multifamily as what I consider the best investment there is. And so started investing in that, found a broker who became my mentor, learned the business. And um, I've been in multifamily investing, brokerage management ever since. So started uh, acquiring some units. I put some deals together. In 2005, I started investing in Buffalo because I was concerned about the LA market potentially crashing in the future. So I started selling all my properties thinking this was the end of it and looked for a market to diversify into that I felt would do well during a downturn. Found Buffalo, started investing there, brought a lot of investors there, built a portfolio of 600 units over 10 years, sold it in 2015. And since then, I've been building my portfolio of apartment buildings here in Los Angeles. And that's what I do. I have a real estate company here in LA. We do real estate brokerage, property management, investments, all in multifamily. So, and here we are today. Dude, that's awesome. Love it. So details, because I love this story and I want you to repeat it. You went balls out in the Buffalo market when no one was going balls out in Buffalo, right? No one... They're like, why would anybody invest in Buffalo? Yeah. Um, you, you, you built it for how long? I started in 2005 and continued to add units for 10 years and then sold the entire portfolio in 2015 for $36 million. Boom. So 10 years, 10 years building. Wow, that's crazy. 2015. And then the last five years... Because I know like it took you a while before you start investing again. And, and and this is funny because my mindset is similar, right? Like, I, you know, you and I talked and in 2015, we both were like, holy shit, you know, you know, this is a time to be reserved. Of course, you know, nothing happened 16, 17, everything has been going great, right? Yep. So at what point did you start saying, okay, Instead of me being the dude that cashed out, right, it can, it can conservatively set, I'm the dude that's now starting to invest again and build again. Yeah. And what made you do that? I mean, I never really stopped. In 2011, so the original strategy, the big arch, overarching strategy was I was going to sell LA at the peak in 05, 06, which I convinced a lot of my clients to do the same. We were going to 1031 exchange into Buffalo ride out the storm, and then when the L.A. market had tanked, sell Buffalo, buy back L.A. cheap. That was the idea because my original goal back then was to get to 100 units in L.A., which now I actually have 101 units in L.A., which doesn't sound like a lot of units, but L.A., the average unit is two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 a door. So you know, it's about almost a $30 million portfolio that I, I have here now. So I guess the challenge was, the deals that I thought were going to materialize when the market crashed were really in the residential space, four units and below, not in the five units and above, which is commercial because the commercial lenders were much more conservative all along in their underwriting. The loan to value is always a lot lower when you go to five units and above. And so there really wasn't big buying opportunities in LA for five units and above. The cap rate had been you know, as low as five back in, you know, before the crash, 05, 06, 07. And then it got up to six, which looked pretty good. And of course, now it's down to like four, or in some parts of LA, it's even two and a half to three, which is ridiculous. But um, the average cap rate's about four right now in LA. So, so the deals didn't materialize. So I started picking up in 2011, fourplexes from uh, you know, auctions, short sales, uh, you know, um, trustee sales, that kind of stuff. So I was always acquiring slowly in LA. And then when I sold out in 15, I just started ramping up. So I've acquired properties in LA every year, except for 2018 was actually the only year since I've started in, in real estate that I didn't acquire a property just because I just couldn't find a deal. It's harder and harder to find good deals. There's always good deals out there. They're just fewer and far between now. 
And so I just, you know, I acquired another property last year. So I've never stopped, but I did re-diversify, right? But you didn't go balls out like you did in Buffalo, though. It wasn't that sort of, it wasn't that sort of aggression, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, also as your net worth increases, you have to start thinking more about diversification. When I was in Buffalo, I was really just starting out building my net worth. And so at one point in Buffalo, 90% of my net worth was tied up in this Buffalo real estate. So another reason to cash out was to really re-diversify my portfolio. Now I'm, I'm about 50% of my net worth in, in real estate that I control directly. And then about another 10% in real estate through other people's syndications. And so I'm still very heavily invested in real estate, but it's just more diversified you know, than 90% and all non-liquid. Now I'm more liquid. I've got, of course, gold and silver as well as, as, a, as a head. So let me just say, yeah, the 40%. Right. What's that invested in? Uh, so I put 10% of my net worth in gold and silver back when I think I was telling everyone in GoBundance to do that, uh, you know, five years ago. Now it's about 12% just because in the last year, gold and silver has gone up quite a bit. So I've got about 12% in precious metals. And then I've got another, so that's what, 72%. I've got about 20% in cash. I've got the rest in things like hedge funds, you know, hotel projects, more risky kind of, you know, stuff, but like other people's deals and syndications. I've got a hotel that was just built in Fort Lauderdale. I've got a bunch of farmland in, uh, up in the, in the, I would consider all that real estate, right? Yeah, but it's not, yeah, I guess so, but it's not real estate. I can, I consider it more like risky sort of edgy investment because I don't control any of that. You You don't control, it's illiquid. It's, it's, it's more illiquid. Totally illiquid. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, we hope that these, these people know what they're doing and we'll get some big checks one. That's a good number too, actually, to start asking. Like what percentage of your portfolio is liquid, meaning you could, you could have cash in six months, let's say. Yeah, so my, my philosophy now is that every investor should try to have about 10% of their net worth in cash, you know, especially if you own a lot of real estate. And, this, and a lot of that is because, you know, you might have a roof go, you might have a big capital expenditure you need. So it's always good to have some cash. So I think 10% is a pretty safe number. But because I do believe we're near the end of all of these bull markets, and there may be some buying opportunities, I think now it's a good time to be more like 20 to 30% in cash. I actually wish I had more like 30% in cash. I'm, I'm down to about 20%. But I've got the precious metals as well, which is pretty liquid. I could at any time turn all Yeah, I would argue that precious metals would be cash, right? Because it would be equivalent to cash. Because you could sell gold. You can sell gold in a day. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think like... Equity in your primary, well, hmm, nah, you might not be able to sell your primary residence. I, I would say precious metals, anything you could sell in a day. If you got a hundred grand in the stock market, yeah, and you could sell it in a day by pressing a button, just like you can your gold. You, even if it's, even if it's real gold, you could take it to a fucking store or whatever and cash Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. I've got a great dealer, one of the largest in the U.S. That's. 15 minute drive from me and I literally could bring any amount of gold and silver and they will give me either cash or wire me money that day. I mean, I've talked to some gold bros recently and they've got like, you know, in their mind, let's just say cash, right? Like whether it's literal cash or it's in something, let's just say super liquid, which means sell it in a day, millions, Right. And, and we're, uh, they've never had that or, and, or, uh, you know, Camille and I were talking this morning, his goal is by July to have a million dollars, like super liquid, let's call it. And I think that's kind of cool. Uh, it may inspired me to do the same, to do more of the same. Yeah. I've always, I had a goal years ago of, of getting to at least a million dollars in cash. Of course, when I cashed out in, in Buffalo, I, I far exceeded that. So I try to always keep at least a minimum of a million dollars liquid at any time. I, th- I think it's great discipline. I think it's, it, I find it, I'm speaking for myself, hard to hold on the cash. It's because we, we have such opportunity. And, and so, especially now in abundance, it's like all these deals and I love looking at them and I'm like, yeah, I'll give you a hundred. Yeah, I'll give you a hundred. Next thing you know, I had 500 grand and I got zipped because I've invested in five deals then it's like, it's, it's almost like it's a, it's a difficulty in saying no based on the dopamine hit that I get from investing in a deal. Yeah, it really is. It really is hard for me. 
the way I uh, discipline myself is I just run to the dealer, the coin dealer, and I buy more gold and silver because it just creates more hassle than I can't, it's not sitting in a bank. I can't easily, you know, I'd have to go back and carry all this shit and change it out. So whenever I feel like tempted, I just run to the dealer and feel like, okay, I'm making investment. And I always do it when the, when the prices drop. So I watch the gold and silver market every day. And every time it pulls back, I run over there and buy some more. So I feel like I'm making investments. Like you said, that dopamine hit, it's exciting, but then it's, but then it's, it's still pretty liquid. And so I don't, feel like it's gone, you know, versus a syndication or whatever. It's pretty much gone until one day, hopefully you get a check. I, I love that idea. I love that idea. Even if it's, and that's great. That's an, that's a great way to do it. It's extreme and it, it, it takes time out to do it. Yeah. But, but, but even like putting it into an account that's like a pain in the ass to withdraw money, like a, like a, you know, like, like you don't have any customer service at the account. Where you'd have yeah. to talk to a telemarketer and it'd take like two weeks to get the fucking check. Yeah, or that TV, stuff. which you're going to get penalized if you yeah. get out, you know. It's good to have some things where you're forced to have to like not think about it because it's very tempting. We do get a lot of opportunities. But also, as I've gotten older, I've really, you know, and I've, of course, as we all have, I've gotten burned on some investments. And so I really try to just keep getting disciplined to even other people's deals. Like if I don't know about it, you know, I, you know, it's, if it's not multifamily, I just probably won't do it because I've just been burned on a, on a number of deals. You know, we all have, but luckily I put small amounts in all of these things and some of them, you know, hit big and some of them go to zero. So, but it is really hard to stay disciplined when there's cash sitting in the bank. You know, you're losing value to inflation. You know, that money is literally rotting away. It's not, incre- you know, you're losing purchasing power because of the Federal Reserve, because of the money printing. You're losing purchasing power having cash in the bank. So I realize that it's not working for me sitting there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I also have kids in private school. I live in LA. I need a lot of cash just to run my life. So <laughs> I really try to keep a good amount of reserves. What do you think of crypto? You know, I definitely believe that cryptocurrency, similar to how the internet has changed the world, is has the potential to change the world. The problem is the Federal Reserve and all the central banks of the world have such a grip on money that, you know, this is a replacement of that status quo power structure. So they're threatened by it. Therefore, they may fight it. But it certainly is the freest form of new money that we've ever, you know, had other than gold and silver, which truly is, to my, in my view, the real money that exists versus fiat currency, which are dollars and all other, you know, paper money around the world is all fiat currency. So um, I love cryptocurrency. It's still too early, though, kind of like if you invested in the Internet stocks in 1998, you know, 90% of them were gone within five years and you, you lost all your money. It's hard to pick the winners. You know, Bitcoin obviously is probably one of the ones. I certainly own Bitcoin. I do own Ethereum. I own probably another 10 altcoins as well. I also invested in a Bit Club, the Bit Club mining network, which now has been shut down by the feds. And all that money disappeared. So luckily, you know, I put, I put 10 grand or whatever. small. What? So, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Slow that down. So, so tell me about this, because this is great. If you don't mind, other people yeah, can learn. Of course. Yeah. So I, I invested in the BitClub mining network. If you just Google that, you'll see that this year, literally in December, up until December, I had all this Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in my account. Then the, in December, the Fed shut them down as a scam. Instead, it's like a Ponzi scheme. And now the website has gone dark and all my Bitcoin and other altcoins that I had been mining for the last four, three or four years, I started, let's see, started in 17, 18, 19. So about two and a half years of mining. I was stupid. I should have taken the mined coins out of that account and just put it in my other wallet. But instead, I left it there thinking, whatever, it's always there. Well, now it's not there. The whole company was shut down. All that money is gone. And so, you know, whatever, I lost it. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the, the best thing is if you're going to do it, own it in your own wallet, control your wallet, keep your password in a safe, do what you're supposed to do to own it uh, and control it. I'm also in that uh, crypto hedge fund that David Osborne had introduced us to. Uh, yeah, that Darsh thing. I heard that's yeah. down. I heard it's like 35% of the original fucking value. I think it's not. I think it's about half. 
I don't know. Half? Okay, yeah, well. It's about half, but yeah, it's gone down about half. But considering that my other... <laughs> What'd you put in that? How much did you put I, in I put, that? I put 50 grand in there. There's actually six of us in the champions group that put 50 grand each. So we got 300,000. 300,000. It's worth a buck 50. Yeah, it's worth about 150,000. And what happened there? Because that was all in companies that were doing like mining and stuff. And then mining ended up being burdensome to the company right yes. that was doing it based on energy costs and tell tell the story or well, stories in general yeah so i mean darsh's philosophy he's the guy that, that owns that hedge fund is to invest in all the companies kind of like the picks and axes of the gold mining industry it wasn't the gold miners that most of the gold miners didn't make any money in back in the 1800s but the people that were selling the gold miners, you know, picks and axes and shovels, they're the ones that made all the money. Uh, and so he believes in, you know, investing in companies that will use cryptocurrency for either transactional or banking or other things that will, you know, that will that will be benefit from cryptocurrencies. But because the overall cryptocurrency markets have crashed so badly since the end of you know, 2017, all those companies have crashed as well. That's why I think we've gone down in half. But my portfolio of cryptocurrencies that I had bought just directly that I still own, they're down like 80-90%. So to be down 50% is actually not too bad. When the market eventually recovers, I actually think that Darsh uh, fund one day could still be a great investment. But, you know, it's uh, it's a total bear market in cryptocurrencies right now. So who knows? We'll see. And like I said, so many of these are going to end up going to zero. And you don't know which ones will end up winning. In the long run. Well, that's the weird thing. Like, I, yeah. I, I just listened to, like, the, the Bitcoin standard, and that author, he's like, Bitcoin is the only one. The other ones are bullshit. The alt altcoins, da 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 And then I just listened to, you know, which made a lot of sense, right? Because they're first to market, and then there's no live people that are running it. But I just listened to Ed Milet, who's coming to GoBundance in Aspen, and he interviewed... This guy, Stephen Moore, I don't know if you heard of his, uh, Donald Trump's, one of Donald Trump's economic advisors. Okay. And Stephen Moore, he's a Fox News uh, host and all this bullshit. Yeah. So, so anyways, he he's promoting a crypto tied to the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Tell what do you think of that? I don't think that's a smart idea personally, just because um, I'm not I'm not bullish on the U.S. dollar for the long run. I'm quite bearish on the U.S. dollar. But it takes out the volatility and and the questions and like people like I I just got back from Dubai, right? And fucking in Dubai, you know they invented their own currency, right? And United right. Arab, they the sheiks or whatever just come up, you know, screw the rest of the currencies. We're going to create our own, right? And they gave it a name like Raleigh or something. Uh, and, and they're like, what well, Raleigh's pegged to the U.S. dollar. So it might as well be the U.S. dollar. It's, not, it's exactly. not. It has the sheik's face on it. Yeah, but see, that's the point. If, if, you're, if you're investing because you want to be tied to the dollar, why not just buy dollars or, or buy treasury bonds? That's because what I was thinking. When he was saying this, I was like, why, why wouldn't I just put not money in the bank or put money under my mattress? It makes no sense. You know, there's... <laughs> There, there is a cryptocurrency called Tether, okay, and it's literally, it's currently 0.998141 of a dollar, right? So it's tied to the dollar. It's designed so that every time people buy Tether, the people behind it go and buy U.S. dollars, and every time they sell them, they sell their dollars. So it's designed to be one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar. The reason it even exists is because when you have all of these crypto brokerage accounts, they don't allow you to sell shit and have dollars sitting there because you have to then go through this horrible, rigorous process to cash it out and then have it wired into your bank account, right? It's not an easy process to turn cryptos in back into dollars. So a lot of people want to play the market. So they want to buy and sell, you know, day trade Bitcoin or whatever. And so it's very cumbersome to try to get your money back into dollars and then back into Bitcoin. So they created this tether, which is basically like what you're saying, a one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar. That way it stays in your crypto account. You can then sell your Bitcoin for tether. And when you want to buy it back, you sell your tether for Bitcoin. And it's easier to do all the, the, the trading that way. So I don't really see the point of having another one. The only one that would make sense is if the Federal Reserve itself came out with a crypto dollar then that would actually, in, in, in theory, 
replace the dollar itself. You don't then need dollars because you would have the Fed's dollars. They would have their own cryptocurrency, which they could do at any time because they print dollars, you know, literally out of thin air every day. Now, especially because of the repo market, they're literally printing 40 to $80 billion every single day out of thin air. So they could create a crypto uh, dollar if they wanted to. Um, and then that way it's just easier from an electronic standpoint for people to be able to, to trade it. But you know, they'll lose control potentially. So who knows if they ever will or won't. But yeah, I do think eventually crypto is going to have a huge impact on the world. It's just very early in, in the game still. So it's, you know, it's fun to play. It's gambling. It's totally speculative. It's not really an investment. I wouldn't call it an investment. It's total gambling, speculation, fun money. Hopefully one day, maybe Bitcoin will go to $100,000 and maybe it'll go to zero. You know, you have to be willing to take that kind of risk with any money you put into crypto. So, Yeah, I think what I think what attracts people is, is this. It's kind of like playing the lottery. It's like yep. an opportunity to get like, fuck you, rich. Where rich beyond belief, right? And that's what it's attracting. But it makes no... Like the more you read and learn about it, the more riskier it seems. You know, you start studying the altcoins and all that stuff. It's like, well, gosh, there's so much I don't know, you know? Yeah. They're so risky. They're totally risky, especially all these other ones, like you said, the altcoins, where there's people behind them. So now you're trusting that those people aren't going to screw you. Like I got screwed on the big club mining. Right. You know, they, they could just go out of business one day and your coin's gone. Bitcoin, on the other hand, can't that can't happen to because it's right. totally you know out there in the world. There's nobody behind it. It's a system that runs on its own, and there's people individually that mine it. The, the ledger is you know on millions of servers around the world. That's why I like Bitcoin specifically because it's really did you know they call it digital gold. It's really not, but it's true. It's a true currency. It's a, it's a true money. Because money is supposed to have limits, unlike the dollar where the Fed prints as much as they want, money is supposed to have limits. That's why our money used to be made from gold. You know, so Bitcoin, when it gets to 21 million coins, that'll be it. And so, you know, there will be a limited supply. And so if you have some and there's demand for it, the, 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 theoretically, it seems like the value could go up over the long term. So, right, especially when they start have, having it, right? And they're supposed to have it in May of this year, which is only a couple months away. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. So the production will cut in half. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's already speculated into the price today or if anybody really gives a shit other than the traders, you know? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on how many people are playing in the market and the volume of trading, just like stocks. I mean, if there's not a lot of people that want to buy it, it's not going to go up in value even when they cut the production of it. So it's interesting. It's fun to watch and it's interesting. But it isn't real. It's not a real investment at this stage. It's total speculation. Like you said, it's gambling money. But, you know, there has never been a bull market ever in the history of the world that was more extreme than what Bitcoin did from its you know, foundation until yeah. $20,000. So that's why it's exciting. Because even the tulip mania of whatever, a few hundred years ago, which was supposedly the biggest bull market of ever back in you know, Holland, you know, Bitcoin blew that out of the out of the water. So there's never been a bull market that was ever that extreme, uh, and a lot of people got filthy rich out of it. And I actually know some people that that put you know got put fifty grand into it, and he cashed out five million dollars. You know, and he actually sold it. You know, at the top, which was fucking brilliant. And uh, you know, now he's buying real estate with it, which is a real investment. So <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. So if you weren't going to invest in gold and you're not going to invest in precious metals, you're not going to invest in crypto, you're not going to invest in, in real estate, and you're not going to invest in anything in, let's say, U.S.-based, what, what would you invest in? What else is there? I mean, I guess the, the, yeah. the, best, the, best guess investment, a, the best investment one can make is an investment in yourself and in your own business. I mean, the, mm, true. The, the true wealth of the world has been created by people who started businesses that served the most number of people and created the most number amount of value for other people. So that's the, the best investment one can make, you know, and so other than building your own business, if you already have cash and now you want to make an investment, you know, I'm convinced multifamily is the, is the number one place that you would put your cash once you have the cash. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, really investing in your in yourself, your education, and your own business is, is, is the best. Yeah, Garrett Gunnarsson said that. He said, like, if the, the fastest way to increase your net worth is to increase your own 
whatever your business is, right? To put money back into your roofing company or your real estate sales company or whatever it happens to be. That's the, and that's true. That's the if you want to if you want to go from zero to hero fast, you invest back into your own company that you're building. All right, so I want to talk to you about uh, you becoming a Spanish citizen. A uh, very like the la- recently, like very recently. Tell me about that. Well, you know, in 1492, they they had the Spanish Inquisition, same year that, of course, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But it was also the same year that they kicked all the Jews and the Muslims out of Spain because there was a king and a queen of different territories, and they were merging their empires. And the way they wanted to merge their empires culturally was to do it under the Catholic Church. And so if you weren't Catholic, you know, a Catholic and you weren't believing in the Catholic Church, you had to leave the country. And so Jews and Muslims were basically kicked out. And then, in fact, if they didn't leave, they were hanged or killed. And so, you know, they pretty much had to leave. My family was, uh, I'm Jewish, and so my family was kicked out. We ended up in Turkey for uh, probably two to three hundred years, we think. Uh, And then we ended up in Bulgaria, which is where my father was born, all the way up until my father's generation. Our family lived in Bulgaria. So we're a a sect of Jews called Sephardic Jews. And I always knew that as a kid because I was taught, you know, that if your father is Sephardic, then you're Sephardic. If your father is Ashkenazi, then you're Ashkenazi. Those are just two different types of Jews based on where you come from in the world. Uh, Sephardic Jews are a smaller number than most Jews are, are the other type, Ashkenazi, which are Eastern European Jews. And the Sephardic Jews, now I didn't know this until I found out about the Spain thing, is a word that means Sephardic, which is a Hebrew word meaning coming from Spain. So actually being Sephardic means you actually came originally from Spain. So the Spanish are very proud of that heritage that there are so many Jews in the world still in this, to this day that originally came from Spain. And so the current king of Spain four years ago declared that, hey, we're really sorry we kicked you out 500 years ago. If you can prove your lineage back as a Sephardic Jew, we will welcome you back and you can gain dual citizenship. So you can keep your existing citizenship of whatever country you're in and have dual citizenship. Normally, Spain does not allow dual citizenship. If you want to be a Spanish citizen, you normally have to renounce your other citizenship. So this is a very special program that they offered four years ago. They actually only did it for three years. They extended it for one year. And by the time I had found out about it, I had about a year left. And I didn't realize what I was getting myself into, but it was an extremely difficult, cumbersome process. I had to actually learn like two years worth of Spanish. I had three months to do it in. I hired a tutor from Spain and Skyped with him three times a week and literally like immersed myself in Spanish for, for three months. I had to go to Chicago, take this huge long test I actually didn't think I passed the test, and so I was pretty sure it was over because the window for the whole program was was ending, and I wouldn't have had time to take the test again. And so I thought I'd spent two years on my of my life, and you know all this energy, and it was for nothing. Luckily, I passed. You had to get sixty percent. I got sixty one percent on the test, and and so yeah, in October, uh, and because my kids are minors, my two boys, they were able to become Spanish citizens with me, not having to take the test. Oh, by the way, besides the Spanish test, which I had to do in Chicago, which is the only place they offered in the United States, I had to take another test also of Spanish history and culture and politics and geography. I mean, all the stuff you had to learn about Spanish. And it was all done in Spanish, the test, but it was multiple choice questions. So they gave you up front 800 questions you had to learn. And if you memorize all of those, then you can pass the test because there's 25 of those questions on the test. But you literally have to like, First of all, I had to translate it all, learn them all, understand what I mean. I spent unbelievable amount of time on this. Anyway, I took that test in Seattle, then I took the Chicago test, and I passed. And so in October of this year, me and my wife and my two boys, we flew to Spain, and we signed in front of the government notary the documentation that will allow us to have dual citizenship. We're actually going to get a birth certificate as if we were born in Spain. I'm like, well, how can they even do that? It's like retroactively dating a legal document. And my lawyer there said, well, you know, the way they look at it in Spain is if they hadn't kicked you out 500 years ago, you would have been born here. So here's your birth certificate as if you were born here. My kids will get that as well. The beautiful thing for for me is for my kids, really. I mean, I don't know how much it'll impact my life personally, but if my kids ever want to go to school in Europe or live in Europe, anywhere in the EU zone, um, we have full reign and rights to live and work for as long as we want in Europe because we'll be a European citizen. So it's very exciting. My wife will also be able to go through the process 
once I get my paperwork, it'll take 18 months for the government to get the paperwork. The bureaucracy in Europe is unbelievable. We think we have it bad here. It's nothing compared to European socialism type bureaucracy. Anyway, but yeah, I'll be getting that, you know, within 18, I guess now it's about a year out, I'll get that paperwork and uh, we'll be dual citizens. So I'm excited about it. I, I feel more so just the connection from my heritage to my, you know, my legacy. I felt the need to do that and also just forward thinking. You know, I think the American empire is declining and it won't be the greatest country in the world forever, like it is current still, even though it's, you know, declining. And so it's really more for my future generations because because my kids will be Spaniards, their kids can become Spaniards and on and on. So it's something that we can really pass on from generation to generation. Yeah, that's really cool. So like your kids have kids, they're going to automatically have dual citizenship. Uh, they won't automatically, but at any time in their lifetime, they can apply to get citizenship because their parents will be will be Spanish citizens. So, so and and they should be accepted, no problems. And they'll be accepted, no problem. Yeah, and and, and by the way, for any GoBros listening, if you have parents that are that were born in any European country, you know, like I have a friend of mine whose parents were born in Poland, which most do. You know, yeah. I mean, where you know, yeah. Find find out because a lot of the European countries have that same law. If your parents are Polish or were born in Poland or Germany or some other country. You but might th these are your direct parents, right? Yes, it has to be your direct parents, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting. It, it could work with grandparents, but I don't, I think you, if you go from grandparents, then your parents have to do it, and then you can do it. But uh, I, I think that's normally how it works. But each country has the rules are a little different. But it's worth checking out in my You going to buy a place there in Barcelona or something, you think? Uh, you know, I'm definitely, this summer, we're hoping to go and, and, and check it out. I'm definitely keeping my eye on real estate there, and I'm going to watch. Pricing actually in Spain has gone up in the last few years, so I'm expecting when there is a downturn, uh, the real estate market will get killed there again like it did during the last recession. So, yeah, I'm definitely keeping an eye on the real estate well, I know it's hard to make it. I, I, was, I was just on an uh, uh, Emirates flight, and uh, the bartender because I, there was a bar on it and shit, and it was really yeah. cool, I guess. So I got up, I went to the bar, I, I, I got an old-fashioned. Nice. You know, you, you got to do that, right? <laughs> you know, it just seemed like it would have been a, a, a crying shame just to go there and get a beer. So so um, anyway, so uh, she's making me an old-fashioned, and, and I'm talking to her, and she says she's from Spain. I think oh, Barcelona, cool. actually, yeah. And she said, I make more money bartending and stortising or whatever for Emirates. And she was like 29 years old, right? I make more money than a doctor wow. in, in my town. That's amazing. And actually, I will tell you, I've read this uh, just recently. Doctors in Europe are like regular jobs. They don't make the kind of money they do in our country. They're, it's really interesting. I had no idea, but it's really not as lucrative to be in the medical profession in Europe as it is here. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, it's, it is interesting. Yeah. I was like, what really? She's like, Oh yeah. yeah. She was killing it. Like from her town, she was the one that got away. You know what I mean? Like she, she made it. That's great. Very you know, cool. and uh, as a stewardess for Emirates. So The wrong tribe confounds, the right tribe compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires, a $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. Anyways, that's, uh, so, you know, we, we usually start off these, these uh, GoBro interviews with some of the basics uh, from the one sheet. you mind if I hit on a few? Of course. So, uh, what percentage are you? You know, it's it's funny. It, 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 it's hard because every year it seems like our cost of living goes up. So, 2019, mm -hmm. I was 43%er. Okay. 43%er, really? Yeah. Now, what, what percentage, this is an interesting question, what percentage of your family income do you think you spend on uh, trips and vacations and stuff? I mean, percentage of our overall, I would say it's about a third of our annual budget goes on travel and trips. We, we do travel all, every month. We're going, so we're traveling a lot. 
So I think that's a big part of why our cost of living goes up because every year we're, you know, we're doing another badass trip. We're going to Columbia in May and with mm. IPO, which is, you know, it's, 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 it's on the same level as, as the, as the go abundance international trips, which is, you know, total high class, like everything, you know, they're expensive. So we always do one or two of those a year. And then in the summer we travel every month, we're going somewhere. So I'd say about a third of our costs are travel. Yeah, that's, uh, I find that a common theme. So that's always curious, curious question. Okay, so here's, uh, I want to ask you about your horizontal yep. to net worth ratio, right? So, you know, take your horizontal income divided by your net worth. What's that number? It was uh, 2%, 1.98% last year. Very small number. Why, why is that? Because my net worth, you know, well, years ago, a few years ago, I, my, I was complaining that, like, you know, I was um, asset rich and cash flow poor. And so mm -hmm. I've really been focusing, you know, I started ever since I joined GoBundance, it's been over five years now, I, I, I created my horizontal income sheet, which is, it's a lot of work. I have 47 lines of horizontal income that I track on a monthly basis. I mean, not every one of those pays me monthly, a lot of those pay me quarterly, but I get checks on 40, so I have 84 assets that I track on my net worth sheet. That I do that once a quarter. And then I have 47 lines of horizontal income that I track every single month. And so that takes a certain amount of time. So because I've been so focused on it, my horizontal income has actually gone up a lot. Last year it was 344,216. It went up from 236,000 the year before. I, I, I'm surprised. I actually didn't project it to, I, went, I projected it to increase by 20% but it increased by 40%. I'm going to project again that it'll increase another 20% next year or, you know, this year, 2020. But, I, you know, I have a very high net worth, and so I guess that's why the percentage is so low. And also because I have, you know, like 20% in cash and 12% in gold and silver, which doesn't earn any horizontal income, but it's been going up in value, but it doesn't earn any cash flow. So there's, you know, 30, more than 30% plus of my net worth is really not earning anything. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you balance that with the 70% that is, it came out to 2%. It's, it's tough. It's all right. That's what it, uh, you know, you know, the average is three actually. So, okay. Oh, but well. uh, that's uh, yeah. So I, I kind of tricked you with that question, but, but, uh, but, uh, you know, but it's good to answer it because I think that people listening to these, like they, they automatically get these numbers in their head, you know, 10%, 15% or whatever. And then they do this equation and, Mine comes out low like that too. I think everybody's. I say when it comes out high, there's actually um, it's actually they're getting horizontal income from a company, and then they and then you got a question: Are they actually working inside the company? Is it really vertical income? Oh yeah, I, that's yeah, you for know. me. That's totally separate. Like vertical income for me is is like commission income because I actually have to do the sales and write the offers and that's that's the job i mean i don't actually work in my property right, yeah. company because i have a great team so my property management company makes a little bit of money but i mean the most of my money from the business itself is vertical that's vertical is from my commission income but then of course my wife also makes a lot of money so she's she's the big breadwinner for vertical income in our household there you go um but horizontal income three hundred forty-four thousand. next year my goal is four hundred thousand. Um, I have a goal of getting to $100,000 a month by the end of 2025. So I'm about a third of the way there. That's awesome. What's your life happiness index? 8.4. That's great. That's pretty high. It's gone up in the last three years. When I first joined GoBundance, it was around a seven and a half. And so it's definitely gone up since I joined what, what have you done that we can learn from? My biggest area of growth is, since joining GoBundance has been my health. Um, and in 2019, I think I really gapped up my health in a, in a big way. Like I actually started running on the beach pretty regularly in the middle of 2019. And now it's become a new passion of mine. I really, really love it. I really enjoy it. And, uh, and so I would say that has increased a lot. My relationships have improved. I would say the area, though, that I feel like I still have the most work on is in my relationships. Um, I feel like I've made great progress, but there's still I feel like I still have way more to go in that area. But the other areas of my life are, are pretty are pretty solid. I'm 
pretty happy dude these days. Awesome dude, congrats. Congrats. What what um what about your giving ratio? Like the amount of money you gave the charities divided by the adjusted gross income on your tax return. Ten point two two percent is what I got for a lot. That's high, dude. Very high. Good job. Good on you. Um, what are you giving to? I give to well financially I give to my temple. I give to my kids' school. Those are probably the two biggest ones. Actually, part of my Spanish citizenship was I had to also contribute to Spanish causes. So in 2019, I gave a few thousand dollars away to Spanish causes. Um, really? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, so they said, hey, if you want, how much did you have to, to give? It wasn't the dollar amount. It was the frequency. So my lawyer said, it doesn't matter how much you give. You just have to give every month. So I picked three charities and I gave them each, you know, a few hundred bucks uh, every month. And so, you know, that and, 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 and for how long? I did that for two years. It's, it's almost like, it. it's almost like a bribe. Yeah, it was, it was on the list of things you can do to create a special connection with Spain. You had to prove a special connection to Spain. So one way was you could have a business there, you could own real estate there, you could have a bank account there. I did open a bank account there, so I, I, that was another thing I did. Uh, you can give to Spanish charity. So it was on a list of like 12 things you could do. And so that was, that was one. Did you do all 12? No, I only did like two, two things. I opened a bank account. I gave to them. And then of course I did all my Spanish studying and that counted as well. I took classes and things like that on, on all that. Do you um, think that the, when you took those classes that you, and, and, and you thought you failed the test, do you think that they said, man, this son of a bitch flew from California to Chicago, studied for two years you know, he, he completely flunked this thing, but, you know, give him a 61. You know what I mean? You know, like, like a lot of people are, afraid. we can't, we got to have some winners here. It's exactly what went through my mind, Pat. That's so funny you said that. It's exact. I said, they must have done, because it took, them three, <laughs> it took them three fucking months to grade the damn thing. They had to send the test to Madrid. You know, they don't grade it in the United States. They send it to Madrid and you wait for three months for some mysterious response. So I actually think that that's probably what happened. Maybe they Googled me or they did some, do we want this guy as a Spanish tradition? Oh yeah, he might be a good addition. Here, give him a 61. Because I really don't know how I passed that part. <laughs> How, how many people? How many people got it last year? Do you know? You, you know, it's funny. They they expected hundreds of thousands of people would be becoming Spanish citizens through this program. At the end of the day, there's been about ten thousand in the world that have done it total. In the United States, it's about three thousand. So not a lot of people around the world took took advantage of it. And also, a lot of people didn't know about it. I told a lot of people about it that I knew, but. Most people had never heard of this thing, and they didn't do a great job of advertising or, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, like, how would you even find out about it? I don't even remember. I came across some article about it, and, <laughs> you know, I always, I, I've been, you know, really looking at how to internationalize my assets, and I've been focused on, you know, maybe getting a citizenship in some other country, and so maybe because I was always, I've always been interested in that and researching that, maybe that's how I found it. I don't remember. I just came across some article, and I was like, well, this is interesting, and started Googling it and found a lawyer in Spain and called her and yeah, that's how it started. That's amazing, dude. All right. So um, let's wrap this up, Michael, with a, um, a question from the GoBundance app. You okay with that? Sure. All right. Hold on. Let's hit it. Michael Hannanow, describe your very first entrepreneurial experience. You thought I was going to say sexual. I know you did, but I'm not <laughs> I won't do that to you. Very first, I mean, I sold lemonade in front of my house as a kid. So I would think that would probably be my very first. I had a lemonade stand. I learned how to make really good lemonade from the lemons in our backyard, made it myself, and would just sit out in front of my house and sell them for like, I don't know, a nickel or 10 cents or something like that. And uh, I sold a lot and um, was able to buy candy with it. So that was my probably my first. But then I would say later on in high school, I sold Cutco knives. It's probably a little bit more entrepreneurial. And then I learned about sales and about, you know, booking appointments and all of that. So those are some early, early entrepreneurial. Man, Cutco is a, is a great gateway. I know that, um, like I know Chris Tufala, his son, you know, they told him, you know, he didn't want to go to college. They're like, well, you're going to get a real job, you know, like a, not like a freaking, you know, busboy or whatever. Right. 
and uh, uh, he got connected with Cutco, and he's crushing it, right? Fantastic. And he's learning a ton, like sales skills, people skills, everything. It's amazing. They have an arm called Vector Marketing. Part of it's really part of Cutco, but they call it Vector Marketing. And it really was my first exposure to like you know personal growth and development and sales skills and you know booking appointments and time management. They really cover so many areas that help you become successful as a business person, as an entrepreneur. It's really a phenomenal organization. I remember just learning so much. It was tough. You know, my mother was against it. My parents were against it. Everyone I knew was like, why are you doing this? Don't do it. I did it anyway. Uh, <laughs> really? I would sell, yeah, I would sell knives to my teachers at school, you know, and then get referrals from them. And I still remember years later, my teachers would all be like, I love those knives you sold me. I still use them every day. They're the, they are the best knives, you know. And so I really believed in the product because they are. it is a great product. But uh, it's a really great foundation for me as it relates to being an entrepreneur and, you know, doing sales and all that. So it's, it's really a cool company. No, it's awesome. And my, my, you know, my wife uh, bought some from Chris's son and, and um, I was like, don't you have Cutco shit? And she's like, yeah, but it's at the Maryland house. You know, we go back and forth to Maryland, South Carolina. She's, and my wife is super frugal, right? Like she does not spend anything excessively. I mean, it's hard to get her to upgrade anything. And, um, I got the opposite problem, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, she was all over the Cutco, you know. I got them at Cutco, and and they, yeah, they are the best. I mean, those those they're they're amazing. Amazing, double D edge. Uh, they never go dull, <laughs> you know. The handles are made out of bowling ball material. I mean, I still have. Them. <laughs> they're, they're the best. They really are the best. Even my mother, who was so against it, okay. She bought a set from me, actually, which was still so she was supportive enough to buy the, the least expensive set. And then later on, she'd never let me have them. Like, she's like, no, 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 don't touch my cut She loved the knives. She just hated that I sold them, but she loved the knives themselves. And so anyway, my mom passed away a few years ago. I inherited her whole collection. I still use them. <laughs> right. Yeah, now, now you don't let your, your kids touch them, right? That's right. <laughs> Never. Those are your grandma's knives. Don't touch them. Smack the hand. Awesome, dude. Well, Michael, this has been a blast, buddy. I look forward to seeing you in Aspen. I know you're going to be in the bull and bear debate. So uh, we'll be, uh, we'll be catching up on that uh, next week. So uh, thank you for contributing today. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. I look forward to it. And I'll see you in Aspen. In life, to be honest, I failed as much as I've succeeded. But I love my wife. I love my life. And I wish you my kind of success. Don't step to me, bitch. Now you can